1: I'm delighted to be back with you for yet another week and today we're going to talk about creative problem solving and about some techniques to really transform uh, performance uh, when it comes to um, problems and issues. Firstly, though, I'd like to thank my guest last week, Tim Bean. Uh, Tim shared his life-enhancing thoughts about executive longevity and if you're not at peak fitness right now or you're not eating with um, health at the forefront of your mind, uh, that show is really worth listening to. Um, for me, um, this has become quite a, an important issue uh, to me personally since I read um, a best-selling book called Younger Next Year by Chris Crowley. And I'm delighted to say I also have Chris on the show on the 12th of September. And as a consequence, um, I've been upping my exercise and overhauling my diet, and, and I'm really experiencing the benefits. And Last week's show with Tim, um, as we'd say in the UK, it put the icing on the cake. Or shall I actually say it took it off? Oh, and actually it got rid of the cake as well. Um, Instead, I'm now enjoying beans and salad, um, but Tim really reminded us um, of the importance of looking after yourself, and if you don't look after yourself, actually, you're doing yourself a massive disservice to those people around you who rely on you and uh, want to uh, spend many years with you in good health, so uh, do go back and listen to that one. Thinking nicely to this show and problem solving, um, I ordered some gym equipment after the show last week, and um, inspired by Tim. And I was actually really unimpressed by a parcel delivery company um, called Yodel. I was arranging to work from home to receive um, the order. And I twice received text to say that they tried to deliver. And a card with details had been left in my post box. And they'd try again the next day. There was no delivery attempt at my house occurred and no card. And the system was so over automated that I just could not get to talk to anyone or let them know online as I needed the number from the card not left in my post box. I made calls to depots and a I called the equipment provider who got through to them and helped. And it really felt like a case of over automation gone mad. And one where problem solving to reduce the risk of, um, of, of, of disappointing customer service is really needed, I think. I think, Yodel, I think if you're listening, you need the thinking power of my next guest today, Dr. David Hall. So why is it that some organizations have rapidly left conventional businesses in their wake while others come under criticism? Dr. David Hall endorses the massive role played by creative thinking. But would you know how to effectively use creative thinking techniques to put you on the leading edge of the innovation curve rather than really faltering? I was really interested in this um, subject because it's true, isn't it, that some great companies, and those companies are really uh, doing well these days and have surprised the kind of old guard of organizations, uh, are doing something differently. And I think creative thinking and and a real sort of passion for business, um, developing business uh, and innovating is really important. Uh, Dr. David Hall really has this passion for business transformation. He founded a company called the Ideas Center. He's a former CEO of HFL Sports Science Limited, and he led the business to become one of the times top 100 best companies to work for. Creativity, innovation, and the pursuit of the perfect culture uh, have provided a common thread throughout his career. He's won the E.ON Award as the UK's most energetic boss. He's uh, become a visiting university professor in business creativity, and he's even had his own online TV show called Connections. So a big welcome to Dr. David Hall. Chris, how are you doing? I'm doing really well, thank you. How are you? I'm very well, very well. Excellent. Well, I'm we have got you on a phone line today, so you may sound David you may sound a little bit distant, um, but uh, I'm sure it will come across uh, clear enough to us to real really, really um, hear and understand. So, um, David, do you want to tell us a bit about you know what got you so enthused about creativity and innovation and culture?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, I have, for the last, before setting up the idea, three years ago, for the prior 20 to 25 years, I held leadership positions in a range of different organizations, and a very wide range of different organizations. You mentioned HFL, which was formerly the horse racing forensic laboratory, which was basically the laboratory that undertakes all the drug testing for British horse racing. Prior to that, I was chief executive of a contract electronics company that stuff printed circuit boards and built electronic assemblies for other people. And Prior to that, I was in the oil and gas sector, manufacturing director for a business that was making safety systems for oil and gas platforms onshore and offshore, so a very diverse array of businesses. And I was never an expert in any of those organizations, but my primary role as a leader for me was always about trying to define an aspirational goal for where the organization should be going, a vision, if you will, and then trying to get people to strive to achieve that vision. Without being an expert in the business, my role was really focused on trying to get the best out of the people, um, trying to get the people to be as best as they as good as they possibly could be. And key to that was understanding the blockages, the things that were getting in the way that were holding people back. And about twenty twenty five years ago, I was doing an MBA and stumbled across some material on creative problem solving. And it was when I was in kind of what would I would classify as dirty manufacturing, if you like. It was a shop floor full of. 150 safety engineers with sheet metal bashing and all sorts of things, very conventional business. And we started playing with these creativity techniques, which fundamentally transformed the way the operation worked. We found that we could transform the thought processes and free up huge amounts of potential. And it kind of ripped through the organization like wildfire, and I've taken it with me wherever I've gone and seen it as being a key leadership tool to find ways in which you can break people out of traditional and conventional
1: molds and release that potential so, so so was this so was this um at this interest then it was something that came about in your work life or or you know when you were a child and that was it partly in that your makeup at that stage or I'd say absolutely
2: not, far from it. I think uh, as a child, I went through kind of the standard educational processes. I went through high school, was quite good at sciences because I'd learned pretty early on that if you take your equations and you uh, learn those equations and sit in front of an exam paper and take the data out of the question, drop it into the correct equation, out pops the answer. So I was very logical in the way I thought about things, hugely uncreative. I went through did higher education, went through university degree, doing more of the same, learning my science, learning my engineering, uh, and graduated as a scientist and engineer, which is not kind of traditional fertile ground for creative types, Uh, and it's not until I stumbled over this material as I was messing around with management training that I realized that you could apply processes and transform the way people think away from that kind of bounded engineering and science background into thinking far more freely. So absolutely, um, something that was released within my work environment, which then spills into every walk of life. Um, So you see opportunities to apply it everywhere.
1: Excellent. So with your your kind of a bit more left-brain kind of background and discipline and process you you use that sort of a structure for to enable free thinking rather than maybe you know someone who is uh actually highly creative who's just sparking off all over the place uh,
2: absolutely and i think one of the issues that i came across as i started to work with this that was that people would distance themselves from the term creativity um i was working in engineering and scientific organizations of one form or another and full of very serious people doing very serious things, of course. And as soon as you start talking about creativity, there's a gentle rolling of the eyes because people have this kind of unpredictable vision of, of how a creative type operates, that they're slightly off the wall, unpredictable, difficult to manage, quite frankly. If they're going to sit in front of a client, you want to make sure that someone's sane sat next to them undoing whatever damage they're doing. And that was very much... The attitude, people would disown it and say, well, if you're doing creativity, and I'm not a creative type, so what you want is that guy in marketing, or we came across a consultant once that was quite good at this kind of thing. Um, and what I've learned is that you can take people who are hugely inherently uncreative, but by applying processes and understanding how those processes work correctly facilitated, you can release the creative juices in everyone. And, and, and it, it, it makes it, it's great fun it involves elements of play, which kind of take you by surprise and just transform the way people think.
1: Excellent. So, 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 for you, um, you know, how would you, how would you kind of articulate creative thinking in a nutshell? What, 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 what is it all about for you? Well,
2: creativity. And the has written about all this stuff. There's no shortage of materials that you can pick up either on the internet or in the bookstore. Um, but boil down. There is a very, very simple definition of creativity, which is the generation of ideas that are both novel and useful. Uh, and it's key to have those two elements, both novelty and usefulness. Um, and we are all inherently, fantastically good at generating useful ideas. Um, we, we, we solve problems. If someone gives us a problem, we will generate a useful idea for them. Uh, and the education system is fantastic because it gears you down that road. Um, however, we're rubbish at novelty, Absolutely rubbish at novelty. And as we mature, the more rubbish we get at it. Um, So we are all great at solving problems, but hopeless at creativity as adults. Um, Curiously, it's the other way around for children, because children are great at the novelty, but not so good at usefulness when it comes to solving business problems. Um, So finding a way in which you can tap into that novelty and blend it with usefulness is the unique art of creativity, if you like, and it's, it, that's the core of it. And it's a, a remarkably simple definition, and it's interesting because if you consider any organization or any context, if you, I, don't know, I, suppose, I suppose you have an organization that has uh, 250 engineers, how many of those would you want to be creative? Well, most people would say none, quite frankly. You just want them to do what they're supposed to do as engineers. But if you ask the question, how many of those engineers would you want to be able to produce ideas that are both novel and useful, that's a different question. Because why wouldn't you want everyone in any organization, any walk of life, to be able to produce ideas that are novel and useful? And um, that's the transformation process. By looking at that very simple definition, the, the, the penny dropped in my mind that this ought to be the heart of any culture in any organization. I want embedded within it is an understanding of this creativity stuff.
1: I think that's a really e- excellent definition. And I guess you get some interesting debate sometimes uh, with regards to ideas where you know some... Uh, some people see an idea as useful and others don't.
2: Uh, absolutely, and I think, again, something else you learn as soon as you start to apply this stuff is just how poor we are at problem definition. Um, and the, the, the framing of a problem dictates fundamentally how we set about solving it. We also tend to frame problems in such a way that we can share it. So we have this problem and we collectively share this problem and we find a way of stating the problem in such a way that it's bland enough for everyone who's looking at that problem statement to say, yeah, I can see that. I I own a bit of that. But of course, everyone owns a slightly different bit of it. Um, And it's critically important within the creative process to have a single person who's going to act as the problem owner. Because at the end of the day, what you don't want to do is to dumb down the quality of the solutions until you can find a solution that everyone says is novel. What you want is the problem owner, the person who's going to go away and do something with it, to be the only Final arbiter of what is a novel and useful idea, because they are the ones that are then going to take away this novelty and do something with it in a useful way. Does that make sense?
1: That makes makes a makes a lot of sense. But I think about you know some of the amazing um, Apple products and th- things that are out there, innovations where you know some people would have said, "Well, you're going to put all, all your records into one device." Other people would have said, "Well, nobody actually wants that because they I put up with the record connections, but it." You know, It took that creative foresight to change people's needs.
2: Absolutely. I think Apple are a great example where I think all too often what we tend to do is we'll develop a focus group to test whether a product is going to hit the mark or not. But what those, what those focus groups do fundamentally is they concentrate into one place, all the conventional and traditional thinking in one place. So what we're doing is taking a new innovation and testing whether or not traditionally, people would accept it. But of course, if it's a true innovation, it's probably going to challenge the way anyone has ever thought before. Mm -hmm. I think Steve Jobs was a fantastic example of someone who refused to do focus group work. What he would say is people don't know that they want this yet because they don't have the patterns formed in their heads that will allow them to understand how to use it. So what we'll do is we will invent a gadget and then we will demonstrate how that changes people's lives. Uh, So there's not a focus group to be seen.
1: Yeah. So what do you think of the consequences if you don't embrace new ways of thinking?
2: Well, I think um, if you don't embrace new ways, what you're doing is really condemning yourself to producing useful ideas, which doesn't sound that bad, really, um, because it means that whenever we're given a problem, what we'll do is we'll use conventional meca- mechanisms, traditional thinking to solve it, and we'll generate another useful idea, which is brilliant. And day by day, minute by minute, that's what we need in any organization, in any walk of life. You want to be able to do that thing. Um, What it means is, however, that if all you are doing is using conventional thinking, producing useful ideas, you will progressively fall behind on the competitive stakes. So if you're trying to transform performance, but only using traditional frameworks, then you'll lock yourself into traditional performance. Those that inject novelty into their thinking will be the ones that break free and start to move on a different trajectory, if you will, and redefine what performance is all about. Meanwhile, you're left behind. And the literature, I mean, the press, the media, are littered with examples of organizations that have basically stuck to what they've always done in the past. Um, if we made a lot of money out of this in the past, therefore we'll, we'll continue to make money about it in the future. We might need to modify it slightly, but fundamentally it worked in the past. Why wouldn't it work in the future? And sure enough, those businesses do fine for a period of time. But eventually they fall massively behind the technology curve, if you will, and and they will fall by the wayside. And there are many organizations, I think Kodak or a classic case, Mm -hmm. made all their money out of film, threatened by digital photography, pushed it on one side and stuck to a film-based strategy because it worked so well in the past. You then spend your life playing catch-up because the technology world embraces this new model. um, And you're behind the curve, literally behind the curve.
1: Uh, have you given a great, we're going to go to commercial break again now and we'll, we'll continue after the break, but you've given uh, some really good examples there, you know, of, and I saw this uh, when I watched some of your online TV show, Connections, uh, which was great, um, that you were sort of articulating that we can be really constrained by habitual thinking and traditional thinking. And that codec example is a really good one, isn't it? Um, you know, the I think to Just I- completely caught them on the hop.
2: Absolutely, and there's kind of a more down-to-earth example recently from last year in the UK, which was a a blockbuster, which was a, a video hire outlet, which had many, many locations on high streets. Um, they went into receivership at the beginning of last year and they must have sat down there as a board and said, well, you know what, all we need to do is sharpen up our act with these outlets and make make our videos more presentable because people will continue to come in and look at boxes to select their video, completely ignoring the fact that the data streaming solutions were coming in. Um, and eventually the company went bust at the back end of last year because no one wants to go and pick up a box and have a look at it and then purchase it to bring back and watch on a TV set. And nice. they stream it. They, the has moved on they were
1: way behind the curve uh, absolutely yes and you only have to ask my four year old child about that he sits there watching his, uh, <laughs> his his streamed films and he's happy as anything he just doesn't want to go and see absolutely. them in a, in a store. right we're going to go to commercial break now we should be back in a couple of minutes and after the break we're going to look at some of the key things that we need to be aware of and uh, and consider uh, when it comes to a creative problem solving so I'll be back again in just a couple of minutes
3: When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network.
0: You are tuned in to Be More, Achieve More with host Chris Cooper. If you have a question or comment about our show, please direct your emails to info at bemoreachievemore.com. That's info at bemoreachievemore.com. Now, back to Chris Cooper.
1: Hi, this is Chris Cooper. I'm with David Hall, and we're talking about creative problem solving. And uh, David, um, we, you know, you've introduced the um, the whole creativity thing um, really well before the break. And, and I'm keen now to kind of move into the key things that we really need to be aware of and consider for to get you know, really good at creative problem solving.
2: Sure. Well, if you look at it, kind of stand back from it just to kind of kick off with and kind of fundamental truths that we all know about. Uh, the first is that the world is exploding at an exponential rate in terms of opportunity. If you look at technology and the pace of change, we have this explosive environment around us with things forever changing. You just think about technology and go back three years and see what's around your ears then. Then go back another three years. and then not, You don't have to go back that far before in the technological dark ages. Our problem, however, is that we as individuals can't keep up with that because fundamentally we make sense of our worlds by looking backwards. So we use our past experience, our training, our education to decide today on how to behave in the future. So it's like steering through the rearview mirror. The trick is to recognize that therefore there's never increasing gap between our little worlds of what is and this tremendous opportunity of what might be that sits around us. And if we're going to make the transition to close that gap up and seize the opportunities, we have to understand that there are things in our minds that get in the way. There are a series of blockages that fundamentally get in the way, and we can't make those blockages go away. But if we understand them, we can start to use tricks and techniques to overcome them. Um, And they're to do with the the thought process and there's patterning behaviors, and there's a whole range of techniques that we can use, um, which kind of fold in playfulness as well, to break through that traditional... Uh, thinking atmosphere that sits around our comfortable little world which then allows us to break out and seize this novelty um, to really make a difference in the way we approach problems.
1: Excellent. Excellent. Um, so, the um, you were saying that the world is changing exponentially uh, and we think backwards and that our us yeah. conventional thinking therefore is at odds with reality. Now, is, is the reality if, if, if people are thinking forwards, they need to be thinking a few years forward because, of course, it takes time to to create ideas and then to put them, move them from being a, an idea in your head to an idea that's manifested in some way.
2: And to be honest, that kind of compounds the problem um, because the way we make sense of our world around us today is through patterns that we have acquired from past behaviour. So, through our, if we look at our experience and we look at our training, Um, or we look at our previous jobs that we've had through our career development, what we do is we understand everything through patterns. So we have a pattern for what happens in this situation, and we store that pattern away. And when we sit in a position where we need to make a decision about what to do next, we trawl through all these patterns to help us understand what's going on. problem is all those patterns are historic. It's like having a, an enormous virtual filing cabinet inside your head and every one of those filing cabinet drawers is jam-packed with patterns that are neatly filed and neatly indexed and subconsciously we're fingering through those patterns to try and get a match between what we've experienced and stored away and what's happening around our ears today. But because the world's changing so quickly, those patterns are constantly going out of date. But we don't keep them updated because we've stored them away in our filing cabinet. So what we're doing is we're superimposing a pattern from the past on a circumstance today. And then, as you say, the implementation of this novel idea might not see daylight for another two, three, four, five years. Meanwhile, the world has continued to change through that period. So we're even more out of date than we are at the moment at which we make the decision. Does that make sense, Chris? You can see how that works. That filing cabinet metaphor I find tremendously useful. Because yeah, you have this, I have this image in my head of this aging filing cabinet that's gathering dust and cobwebs, and what we do is we blow off the cobwebs, drag an old pattern out to help us understand the situation today, and somehow expect it to be appropriate.
1: And, and, and it, makes, it gets me thinking about you know some of these uh, you know young entrepreneurs, you know the founders of Google and Facebook and uh, the like. You know, they don't have those patterns uh, that maybe some of us who are a bit older. Um, you know, we're not have such a big filing cabinet, do they? So maybe, maybe you know, anything can go.
2: Well, well absolutely. It is, it, it, the filing cabinet metaphor is fantastic because if you go back to when we you know, every one of us, when we're born, we've effectively got an empty filing cabinet. What we do as we grow up and get more and more experiences, we file more and more away in this. Um, there's some fantastic research that's been done around creativity. There's a definitive test for creativity called the Torrance Test. And what they've done is they've applied this test through age groups for children as they grow up. And at the age of four, more than 98% of children are deemed as being genius level of creativity, not good, genius level. By the age of 10, it's down to 34%. And by the age of 17, it's down to 11%. And effectively, what you're seeing is how the education system stuffs stuff into their filing cabinet which demands that we then have more and more frameworks to understand what's happening around us, which is useful at one level. But when it comes to creativity, it stifles our creativity. Because we, if you ask me how to address a particular engineering problem, I will trawl up an equation that I learnt at university when I was 20, and I'll apply it now, and trust me, that's a considerable length of time ago. And things will have changed, and I'll be using an inappropriate pattern. But it's the only one I've got in my filing cabinet
1: yes I suppose though at age four as you mentioned earlier that um, the, the ideas might be novel but they might not be useful
2: absolutely absolutely and the magic of creativity and which then feeds into innovation because it's kind of important at this point I think just to make sure that creativity is seldom an end in itself it's actually innovation is what you want and the simple definition of creativity is making ideas, generating ideas are novel and useful. The simple definition of innovation is making money out of creativity. And making money is, it might be making, generating cash, it might be adding value, so it works in public sector, it works in charitable organizations. But the trick is to combine the two. And adults can do it if they can find a way of getting in touch with their inner four-year-old. And that's the play element. What you want to do is to have mechanisms that allow you in a structured way to engage with that creativity from earlier years in a playful environment, knowing full well that what you'll do is take the novelty and then make it useful. And most creativity techniques work in a two-stage process. You start with an idea that's novel and useless, uh, very consciously, because it's useful kills novelty. We don't like novelty. So if you consciously set out to generate a novel idea, um, don't worry about usefulness. But then the second stage is to ring-fence that novelty and find ways in which you can deliver it usefully. You then end up with a novel and useful idea. Bingo, you have a creative idea. Then, of course, you have to implement it, and that's the innovation process. And the block's there, sit at organizational level.
1: That's a really, really great uh, distinction. And it probably also also explains why sometimes some creative types may be struggle with the innovation piece. Are you making money out of their creativity? Absolutely. Because it's not, 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 not their natural um, style of thinking.
2: Uh, absolutely, sir. So. And it takes a completely different skill set. Um, and it, it's interesting. There's, um, Christensen wrote, wrote an excellent book called The, the Innovators Dilemma because there is a major dilemma as well. Even if you take a cracking idea, a brilliantly novel idea that's hugely successful, What organizations then tend to do is to scale up to deliver that very successful idea on a commercial scale, and in order to do that, they have to put professional management around it, which effectively then acts to stifle any further creativity, Mm -hmm. because the individuals that can do the innovation side of it can't understand the processes that generate the idea in the first place. Yes, because what they do is they put codes of practice and standard operating procedures, and they put policy statements around it that protect the integrity of what they're doing. The innovator or the creative type doesn't work that way at all.
1: Mm. Makes a lot, lot of sense, and um, I suppose you've also got but there's a time lag like there, isn't there, too, to um, putting all of that infrastructure in place. So there's a, there's a risk, unless you can do it quickly, that. Uh, you know, the idea might not be useful with the speed of the other world is changing exponentially.
2: Absolutely so, which then kind of adds that innovator's dilemma, if you like, because you produce a brilliant idea. It takes you years to implement it. You're then off off the pace again. Um, and of course, the, the management systems that tend to be put into organizations fundamentally slow down and inhibit the freedom and, uh, of, of thought and, and the fleet of foot so small entrepreneurial organizations who can move very quickly as they become successful and grow get stifled so many, many innovative entrepreneurial companies that grow quickly end up wondering why on earth they can't continue to be innovative mm. and you have to find mechanisms that will do it and 3 M I'm a classic case with their skunk works where what they did was basically institutionally put inside their cultures mechanisms that would free people up consciously in order to um, engage with the creative process without any real agenda.
1: Right. And was that helpful?
2: Well, certainly within the 3M environment it was, because 3M put a framework around their management. They forced the creativity through the organization by demanding that um, revenues from any any. Uh, operating unit had to come from fresh sources every three years. So they had a top-level objective that said, well, I don't care how you do it, but in three years' time a third of your revenues will come from sources that are as yet undefined because you don't know, you don't have the products. That, what that effectively does then is pull creativity through the organization because the management structures then have to sit and work out where that new stuff's coming from, which then demands that you give people the creative freedom. Mm. The flip side of that is trying to push creativity into an organization which is almost doomed to failure because what you do then is you excite people about the creative process. You let them loose in an organization and they run around the organization saying, look, we can do some creative stuff. What do you think of this? And because it's not aligned with the objectives of the company, it's it's not delivering anything tangible other than some interesting thought processes. People see it as being outside the day job. Yes. And because it's outside the day job, when they get stuck in the muck and bullets of everyday... Business life, they push that to one side and don't engage with it.
1: It's a very, very good
2: so the art of embedding good. this creative proce- process within an organization kind of depends on the culture of the business. So it's quite an intricate piece of surgery that needs to be done to put this systematic approach to creativity into the business. Yeah. But it can be done. I it can be done.
1: Yeah. I was thinking about a legal firm that I was once uh, working with who had, uh, the leader had some tremendous um, ideas. Uh, to really transform the way, way they operated. Um, but they were just falling on deaf ears. It was just yeah. pushing water uphill with a rake, trying to uh, change uh, the, the mindsets to a different pattern of, uh, of thinking. Um, and, and
2: effectively, if you're not very careful, what you're doing is shouting at people. So the leader shouts at people, we must, we must be innovative, we must do things differently, here's a different thing. But unless they understand the blockages that get in the way unless they understand what's getting in the way of people being able to engage with that. then it's a waste of time. Um, One of the the, the fundamental blockages that we have at our heart is is, um, a patterning behavior. Um, Because we make sense of everything via these patterns that are locked away in the filing cabinet, we get wedded to a pattern for an organization. And someone coming in and saying, well, why don't we do, here's a whiz-bang idea that's absolutely crazy and will make us a fortune. People will look at that idea and say, well, it's inconsistent with the pattern of how we normally do things. Mm. So therefore, it's a crazy idea. Because we Mm. qualify the quality of an idea by the pattern that we're superimposing on it. And if there's no fit, if someone says, well, we should be doing X, Y, Z, they go, well, this is crazy. Um, This makes no sense. you know, Steve Jobs sets up Apple as a computer company and comes in one day and says, well, I'll tell you what, we should be moving into phones. Um, many organizations will go, that's a crazy idea. Quite frankly, you should be shot. Um, forget about it. We're, we're a computer company. And that's it. Now, Steve had the position where he was able to dictate and say, no, 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 we will do this. And he had to then manhandle changing the patterns inside people's heads. And eventually you end up with a culture that is used to being able to change the pattern. It understands that the pattern today will not be the pattern in a year's time. Whereas the majority of organisations defend the pattern today to make sure it is the pattern in a year's time because that's the comfortable status quo.
1: Yeah. And there's some some traditional kind of, you know, attitudes, probably from the filing cabinet of things like, oh, we we should stick to our core because the companies in the, you know, 70s and 80s who grew into conglomerates and weren't um, failed um, but I get you know you look at people like Richard Branson coming out of music and uh, and the example that you just given there with, uh, with Steve Jobs Jobs um, you know it demonstrates that actually you can it can be kind of a core principle but you can have a number of different very different product lines if you if you can um, adapt your mind to it and the culture.
2: Absolutely I think it's so. a a marvellous point as well, because if you go back if you go back and look at the, the work that and Waterman did in terms of In Search of Excellence, they identified a whole series of excellent companies, and one of their main themes was stick to the knitting, yeah. stick to what you're good at, stick to the core. But of course, if you go back 20, 30, 40 years, the rate of development was of the environment around us, the rate of emergence of opportunities was so much slower than it is today. So what was right 40, 50 years ago clearly cannot be right today. And yet people still refer to sticking to the knitting. And if you stick to the knitting in today's environment, you guarantee that you'll get left behind.
1: Yeah. Yeah, And principles like, uh, you know, you're supposed to develop your niche and it'd be an inch wide and a mile deep. Um, But some people manage to have different patterns. (laughs) Um, Uh,
2: Absolutely. And in a way, I think any organisation what they have to do now is they assume that whatever we're discussing today, someone somewhere in the world is developing a new pattern that will completely transform the way the consumers or the customers think about what we're doing today. Yeah, because just the world it so quickly, and we get stuck in our patterns.
1: We do. We've just got a couple of minutes till commercial break now, but I, I wondered—you um, know—we you talked earlier about you know ideas being novel and useful. What, you know, what do we need to do to ensure that both?
2: need to do is we need to find different ways of um, approaching the problem solving process we have a very conventional uh, if you will left brain approach which is very logical process driven approach to problem solving and what we need to do is to understand a series of blockages that are in the way first of all we have to understand that we're appalling at problem definition. We're very sloppy at problem definition because the exciting bit of a problem definition is not defining it. It's solving it. So what we do is we share a problem, and as soon as we hear a problem being defined, we're busily trying to solve it. Uh, And if we can solve it by the time the owner has finished describing what it is, then we look so much better in front of our, our peers. We need to get over that and stop doing that because the way you approach a problem, the way you try and solve it, is absolutely fully conditioned by the way you express the problem in the first place. We then need to engage with techniques that can be introduced to um, diverge the thought process, to suspend judgment, to get rid of the traditional frameworks. And by operating in that divergent way, we can free ourselves up and enter the land of novel and useless or the intermediate impossible, the stepping stone towards creativity. What we then do is put judgment back on the table and take the novelty and make it useful, so we end up with creativity. But we have to engage with play, and we have to understand how these techniques work. And at first sight, they often feel uncomfortable, because we're grown-ups, and we shouldn't be playing with these techniques that are messing with our minds. Uh, We have to destroy the patterns that we depend on, make them unfamiliar, then we can free up the divergent process. And without that, you can't generate the novelty. Um, So that's kind of where we ought to go next, I guess.
1: Excellent. Well, we're going to have another commercial break, the final one, so we'll be back in a couple more minutes and we'll talk more about that um, after the break and some of the techniques that we can start to use ourselves to help our creative thinking. We'll be back with you again in just a couple of minutes.
3: When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network.
0: Hi, I'm Rebecca Costa, host of the Costa Report, every Tuesday at 6 a.m. and again at 6 p.m. This week, my guest is outspoken former congressman and one of our country's most prominent gay public figures, Mr. Barney Frank. He'll be with us to talk about the Supreme Court's ruling on DOMA and how the Obama presidency is doing in its second term. Don't miss Barney Frank this Tuesday at 6 a.m. and again at 6 p.m. on the Voice America Business Channel.
3: together in conversations that make a difference right here on the Voice America Business Channel every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time
0: Would you like to work personally with the host of this show to help realize your potential? Chris Cooper supports business leaders and high potential individuals to achieve greater success in their businesses and careers Support includes the opportunity to join a high return group mentoring and mastermind program called The Achiever Program one-to-one mentoring and coaching, facilitated leader development workshops and speeches. Email info at bemoreachievemore.com to arrange a free, no-obligation consultation to see how Chris and his team can help you.
3: The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio, Voice America Business Network.
0: tuned in to Be More, Achieve More with host Chris Cooper. If you have a question or comment about our show, please direct your emails to info at bemoreachievemore.com. That's info at bemoreachievemore.com. Now, back to Chris Cooper.
1: Hi, this is Chris Cooper. I'm with David Hall. We're talking about creative problem solving. And uh, David, I'd like to move on now and have a chat and to really kind of understand some of the ideas that you have and maybe some examples of different techniques that uh, people are maybe listening or may um, want to forward this uh, this interview across to that people can actually actually get on and use
2: sure there are a vast number of creative problem solving techniques. If you just google creative problem solving techniques you 'd be staggered by what comes out. There are books written on this stuff. Um, but there are some very elegant kind of introductory techniques that kind of demonstrate the principles exceptionally well. I think um, what we 're trying to do remember is generate ideas that are both novel and useful and I think i 've already spoken about the kind of the stepping stone two stage process that we use here, and stage one is generating an idea that 's novel and useless. Um, Then grabbing hold of the novelty and finding a useful way to deliver it, which then gives you a creative idea. Uh, A neat example, uh, which I would always kick off with, uh, is a technique called reversal. Um, The vast majority of problems as they are expressed are about trying to make a situation better. Uh, We're trying to improve communication or we're trying to improve profitability. We're trying to take a situation and make it better. And what they tend to do, conventional problem-solving techniques, will generate a list of approaches on how to make things better. Um, They never really venture into how to make situations brilliant. What they do is they focus around how to make things better. But we want brilliant if we're going to go down the creative route. Uh, But we've got a whole series of mental blocks that stop us moving up that axis. And so what we do in reversal is to overcome that by, in the first place, reversing our problem definition. So, rather than trying to make a situation better, what we do is to redefine the problem in terms of making it worse, but not a bit worse. What we want to make it is as worse as we possibly can do. We want to make it abysmally. We want to make it. We want the company to be destroyed by whatever the situation might be. How can we um, destroy the profitability of the business? Uh, and what we then do is we brainstorm as many ways as possible of achieving and solving that reverse problem statement. Now, of course, this is now a ludicrous situation. We've, uh, we've destabilized everyone and taken their frameworks, their patterns away because we're now trying to solve the problem about how to destroy the business. The key thing then is to recognize that this is a stepping stone. This is your intermediate impossible. Because what we do then is to grab the most outrageous idea we have on how to destroy the business, isolate it, understand why it works, what are the characteristics of it that make that destroy the business, and then you reverse those back because that effectively gives you a double reversal in the process. And because of the leverage, because we've not just done the mirror image reversal, we've reversed the problem and then made it considerably worse, when you reverse the ideas that are generated there back on themselves, you end up in a tremendously, potentially brilliant place where you completely change the way people think about it uh, and produce the novel and useful idea. Can I give you an example, Chris?
1: Yeah, please do, yeah.
2: We had, um, when I I worked in a laboratory based organization, I was chief exec of an organization for 10 years that was basically a laboratory based organization. And at the end of every day, um, we had uh, a whole bunch of dirty glassware in lots of these different laboratories. Uh, And what we do is we got someone who'd come in at the end of the day and they would collect up all the dirty glassware and take it away on a trolley and chip it across to the waterclave at the other side of the car park. And what they'd do then is they'd wash it and then they'd bring it back to the laboratories. And so the following morning everything was neat and tidy. Um, When I was looking at the budget for the organisation, I spotted that we had a budget line which was simply entitled replacement glassware and it had a value of about £2,500 a month, and that was the budget entry. Sure enough, we'd spend that amount on replacing glassware every month because we had a budget for it. when I ask people about it, they said, well, yeah, yeah, that's, that's because we have a problem. Because at the end of every day when the glassware goes away, it inevitably gets cracked or damaged. Um, it, sometimes it doesn't come back because we don't know what happens to it. It disappears in the ether somewhere, and we have to replace it. So every month what we do is we just kind of buy and top up the glassware again. I said, well, that's a problem. And they said, well, no, it's not a problem. That's a solution. The solution is we have a budget of £2,500 a month to replace the bro- That's the solution to the problem. I said, well, hang on, let's just throw some creativity at this. and We used the reversal technique. And what we did was to say, well, how could we, rather than try and ha- how could we reduce the amount we spend on replacement glassware, we said, how can we guarantee that every single piece of glassware, when it goes off for washing, first gets broken, then gets lost? <laughs> we then brainstormed ideas on how to do that, and we conjured up this image of, this um, an individual who would come in the middle of the night who had no understanding of the laboratory. It was lights out. They had to fumble around the laboratories to grab whatever glassware they could find it and it was dirty or clean. They'd put it on a trolley. We'd make sure it was one of these supermarket trolleys where only three of the wheels worked so it was unstable and they had to kind of jiggle off so everything was rattling about and chipping. We'd throw things at them as they have water bombs drop on them as they tried to go across the car park to the autoclave machine. And of course, everything was smashed by the time it was at the cleaning facility. And they didn't know how to put it back into the laboratory, so they guaranteed it. Brilliant solution. We then said, well, why does that work? Well, the first issue was that the person responsible had no connection with the laboratory, had no understanding of the laboratory. So there's no connection. The other thing was that the journey was intolerable. It was an intolerable transit from laboratory to cleaning facility. So we tried to reverse both those concepts. And what emerged through discussion was the concept that no one should handle the glassware unless they are passionate about the integrity of that glassware and that, B, it should never leave the laboratory, so we eliminate the journey. And what we ended up with was spending £3,000 to install washing capability into each of the laboratories so the glassware never left it. So the only people who were cleaning the the glassware were the people responsible for it the following day. We reduced in three months, we spent £3,000 and reduce the cost of our replacement glassware from two and a half thousand pounds a month to 200 pounds a month forever. Mm. And it was only as a result of challenging the processes that we managed to get that fresh thought process in there. Mm. And it's a heavily good. structured process. Uh, and what good. it does is you follow it by numbers and there's a logic to it and you can take people who would not treat themselves as creative, but because of the process, you release the creativity. Mm. I give you
1: another yeah. technique? We've got time? Yeah, please do, because you mentioned to me something in the break called Superman. And I'm, I'm a superhero, and I'm really interested to hear what that Superhero is, is a brilliant <laughs> technique.
2: Um, many people refer to brainstorming as a creative technique, and in the beginning it was, but it's become abused over the years. Basically, brainstorming is a mechanism that's not creative. What it does is it generates a list of useful ideas seldom are they novel Uh, no one ever dare brainstorm an idea that's novel and useless and the antidote to brainstorming that we use now is superheroes Um, what i've got is uh, a collection of superheroes cards and in a creative problem solving session you hand out the cards Uh, each individual picks up their card which has a different definition on it of a different superhero they read it and digest it and they become that superhero for the duration of the brainstorming session so they have to brainstorm in the style of the superhero guarantees is that every suggestion would solve the problem but it's sufficiently novel because it's coming from a superhero and absolutely impossible to implement because no one in reality has those superhero skills. So it guarantees that every idea that's brainstormed is novel and useless, outrageous. What we then do is take the most outrageous of those ideas, understand why it works and then find a useful way of delivering that same novelty so, again, that two-stage process. So powerful is the technique. There are a number of organizations that we've been working with. Isn't it? Right. Elegant Engineering Company, electronics engineering company outside Cambridge, very um, respected part of a worldwide group. You walk into their, one of their meeting rooms. Uh, in the far corner, you spot a running rail, and on the running rail are the outfits of the superheroes. So convinced are they that this works, that when they use it, they dress up in the, as the superheroes. Because what they find is it kind of transforms the way you approach things. And of course it injects that playfulness. What you're doing is getting in touch with the inner four-year-old. Because well, everyone wants to be Wonder Woman, quite frankly. Everyone wants to be Batman or Spider-Man. And you solve the problem in that style. And then work out what that solution is a metaphor for. And so the adult bit, the serious bit where the adult comes back into the room, effectively. So you shed the superhero garments, and you're now in a serious mode, trying to work out how to convert that superhero metaphor into something that's practical and real.
1: That's that's fantastic. You just give me an idea because uh, yesterday morning, my four-year-old insisted on wearing nothing um, out of his drawers unless it had a superhero on it. So socks, uh, pants, uh, tra- shorts. Um, the, uh, the lots. I and mean, you he was also wearing to Spider Man mask, and just making me think that when I'm when I'm I'm being creative around my business, maybe I ought to have my own superhero outfit as well. <laughs> well, yes,
2: and yes, and both these. Increasingly, what we do now is that if we have a business problem, uh, what we do is we kind of express it in slightly more generic terms, and we work with local primary schools, go in and talk to classes of seven year seven and eight year olds, and ask them to ex- to explore this problem. What they then do is generate staggeringly novel and useful ideas. So use your son in this case, give him the problem, see what he generates. It generates a novel idea that's useless because they're brilliant at that, better than we are. What you then do is say, thank you very much indeed. Take it away, work out what it's a metaphor, because they will solve the problem, but it will be using a crazily novel approach. What you then do is convert that novel approach into something that's also useful. And that 's the adult bit laid over the over the top of it, so you have within your home the perfect mechanism for creative problem
1: solving that's a really really good idea i had the the privilege of um, for the first ever time speaking to uh, one hundred and forty primary school children and their teachers a few weeks ago and mm-hmm. uh, i was I was quite astonished by the by the variety of questions from um, as you would say completely useless questions to um, to one or two questions that I thought were, were brilliant um, and, and would, would, have, would have been brilliant coming out of an adult so I think you're certainly yes. right yes. with what you say and
2: so. the scary thing is what we do to our children is we tell them to grow up we say oh, for goodness sake stop messing around grow up don't be silly um, no, you're, an, you're an adult now and all we're doing is conditioning them away from this creativity so don't be surprised that they
1: lose the creativity as they grow up Hey, it's a great, great, great way, isn't it, for them to uh, to generate a little bit of a return on investment from them as well.
2: Absolutely, and businesses next to schools, they should be forging an alliance here because you've got an engine here that will generate fantastic creativity. But it needs people who understand it, and we just need to put a framework around it. It's cool
1: stuff, and it works. And when the kids love it, and and the teachers um, to have an alliance with an organisation like that, who who um, So the value in them. Absolutely,
2: and the feedback I get from the schools is that they they can't get enough of it because what you're providing is business role models that maybe challenge the conventional aspirations of the children because most children haven't been exposed to anything other than a very narrow of TV-oriented role models. They want to be a professional footballer or they want to be on whatever reality TV program that's what they want to be all of a sudden they've got engineers talking to them and they've got printers working with them and they've got scientists working with them and they've got office workers with real problems and they are being valued for what they can contribute to them so their, their, their self esteem goes through the roof the rules yeah, are there got, that can to... kind of broaden their understanding everyone wins
1: excellent we've got to leave it there we've got about 30 seconds um, do you have a, a final message you'd like to leave us with? well I think final
2: message is to say look that the majority of individuals majority of organizations live in this traditional world the exciting stuff lies outside it but you need to find mechanisms to help you break outside it um i'd also say that simply using techniques to generate creative ideas creative ideas are not the end in themselves it's what you do with those creative ideas that's critical there are a whole series of blockages that get in the way of generating them and then there are a whole range of realities, kind of things in the organization that then kill those ideas if you're not very careful. So they need resilience and determination to be driven through.
1: David, um, I think there are some really valuable um, nuggets and, and ideas in that. Um, I certainly got some, um, some benefit out of, out of that, and I'm sure lots of people did. So thank you very much indeed for joining us today. If you want to find out more about... Um, David Hall, um, go to the IdeasCenterGroup.com. That's IdeasCenterGroup.com. Once again, David, thanks very much. Hope you enjoyed being on today.
2: It's been an absolute pleasure, absolute pleasure.
1: Been brilliant to have you. And on next week's show, I'm absolutely delighted um, to have um, Peter Thompson on the show. Um, Peter um, is uh, uh, personally a little bit of a hero of mine, and I studied his, his, his tapes and CDs for many, many years before I set up my own business, and I think he played a part in inspiring me to do that. Um, he is um, a real expert when it comes to information products, uh, the, the most significant expert, I think, in the UK. And... Um, he's going to talk to us about how to develop your own information products and create them and market them next week. So that will be an absolute uh, must. I'm very much looking forward to that. Once again, David Hall, thank you very much, and I wish you all a great week.
0: Thank you for listening to Be More, Achieve More. Please join your host Chris Cooper again next Friday at 8 a.m. US Pacific time, typically 4 p.m. London on the Voice America Business Channel. Enjoy your week.